When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with licensed professional counselor Debbie Tudor about the many signs of narcissistic parents and the various different types of contact adult children of narcissists can have going forward, including a brilliant new method Debbie created herself. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, a podcast that interviews mental health professionals, lawyers, researchers, and authors about narcissistic and domestic abuse. I am your host, Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning in to this episode. And before we get into our episode, let me state that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do not substitute the show for medical advice. If you are struggling, please do reach out to the current professional you use, or please do call your local domestic abuse agency. Speaking of professionals, we just started our own directory of mental health professionals at abusetherapy.org. Yes, that is abusetherapy.org. So if you are looking for someone to talk to, please do go there to find someone. Using one of those professionals from our directory helps support the show, and we'll be adding as many diverse professionals as we can in the upcoming weeks. If you are a professional and want to be part of our directory, please do email me at directory at abusetherapy.org. Also, we have another show. It's our sister show. It was our first podcast called Narcissist Apocalypse, and it's survivor stories only. So if you are a survivor of a narcissist and narcissistic abuse, narcissistic parents, go listen to Narcissist Apocalypse, our original podcast. It'll help you feel less alone in the world. And before I get out of my own way and start the show, and FYI, I'll be leaving all of Debbie Tudor's contact information in the description of this show so it's easy for you to find. She is a counselor out of Texas, but she can also be a coach no matter where you are in the world. And for those adult children of narcissists out there, I think you'll really like Debbie and you're about to hear a contact method that you've never heard before and I am pretty excited to help introduce it to you. So without further ado... It's time for the show. Here is my conversation with Debbie Tudor. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A. With me today, I have Debbie Tudor. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Debbie is a licensed professional counselor, also a supervisor. She's 24 years in practice. You've trained with the uh, your WBG certified, which is Will I Ever Be Good Enough, which is by Dr. Uh, Carol McBride, and, and she wrote the uh, preeminent book uh, about narcissism and uh, children, specifically with daughters. Uh, how is that uh, training you know, going forward, how has it helped you within your practice? 
Dr. McBride's book was a life changer for me. Um, she, once I read Will I Ever Be Good Enough, uh, Healing the Daughters of Narcissistic Mothers, it explained a lot clinically for me that a lot of my clients have been going through and my life coaching clients, but it also hit home for me personally. Um, I am a daughter of a narcissistic mother, and the training that she gives us shows how to identify it, how to help a client recover from it, and gives tools going forward. So it changed my life. It changed the focus of my work because this is what I have a passion for now, is helping adult children of narcissists. It led to me even writing my book, which is It's Not You, It's Them, 30 Days of Hope and Help for the Adult Child of a Narcissistic Parent, because I wanted to make this the focus of my career now, and it's just been amazing what she's taught me. And so you are uh, a, a counselor and a coach, and you are an all-remote counselor in the state of Texas. For everyone out there uh, in Texas, that you'll be uh, you'll be able to help anyone in the state uh, going forward. And when you were discussing there about you, you know you were the daughter of a narcissistic parent, uh, can you talk about? Uh, I guess going, you know, for people out there, how it is to recognize a uh, narcissistic parent when you are a child yourself or even, you know, as an adult right now, how can someone make that determination? Uh, Well, first of all, let me correct just a little bit. I can life coach anybody in the world. (laughs) You don't have to live in Texas. Um, Professional counseling license is a little bit different, and that's for Texas, but I also life coach. But the way that um, you can tell what's going on for you and the things that come up over and over in my coaching clients and my counseling clients is that in their childhood, they got criticism instead of cuddles uh, because narcissists don't have empathy. They don't understand or work with the fact as a parent that that child needs empathy and affection. And over and over again, I have clients come to me and say, the very first thing that every client says is, am I a narcissist too? Now that's because the scapegoated child is typically blamed for everything that goes wrong in the family. But I always ask them about their parenting. So if you got criticism instead of cuddles, but maybe you love your children and you are encouraging, then that's a sign you were probably scapegoated and you had a narcissist parent. And often another sign is that even though the narcissist was cruel to you as a child or is still cruel to you, the, your other parent either checks out, disappears, or they support and defend the narcissistic parent. Um, you might be told things like, well, what did you say this time? Or... Just, just leave her alone. You know that's how she is. So it was a very strange style of rather than holding the narcissist responsible for what they did, the enabler parent held you responsible for upsetting them. So that's another characteristic that we often see. We also see that a narcissistic parent will brag on you in public but criticize you in private, and that's because they want the rest of the world to think that they 
they are this super parent and that your job is to to shine or reflect glory like back on them. So in public, they're telling everybody, my daughter did this, my son did that. But in private, it's much more about you didn't make straight A's or you embarrassed me, things like that. So another characteristic is a feeling that you just aren't good enough. Uh, over and over, a narcissist will try to um, try to make you feel their their need for compliance and admiration. So I always tell the story. Literally, in my case, um, my mother said, "Well, you threw me a 40th anniversary party. Now, where's my 50th anniversary party?" And it's just that you can never do enough to make them happy. And such is the title of Dr. McBride's book. You just will never be good enough. Another characteristic that you might have that suggests you were raised by a narcissist is you have this feeling like if someone's unhappy, what did I do wrong? We take responsibility as scapegoats for everybody's moods and emotions rather than think, well, that person's just having a bad day or, well, that's on them. If they're angry, I didn't do anything wrong. We automatically look for what did I do and how did I fix it. And another characteristic is that no matter what you did for that narcissistic parent, it's never enough. So you might please them today, but tomorrow there's going to be something else that you didn't do right or you didn't give them. It's a never-ending battle for applying them and making them feel good. And, of course, it can't work because nobody can do that for another human being. Another characteristic of being the child of a narcissist is that you nurtured them instead of them nurturing you. Um, you weren't given support, but you were supposed to give them supply. You were supposed to make them look good to everyone else and brag on them and shine again for them. It's also... Um, often that you have a strong sense of responsibility for the happiness of the people around you. Uh, you tend to give advice. A narcissistic um, victim will often tell me, well, everybody loves to ask me what they should do in their lives, and I just love to tell them because we start out very young trying to fix everything that's wrong around us. We know that the family is unhappy. We know that the narcissist is unhappy, so we try to fix it. So that's called codependency, and it develops very often in the scapegoat of a narcissistic parent. And then we also tend to set our needs aside in friendships or romantic relationships. Uh, this is a magnet for a narcissist. If you are walking around saying, I'm ready to give myself up to please you, then you're going to attract people who will take advantage of that. So it is often true that if you grow up with a narcissistic parent, you tend to be attracted to other narcissists. You pretend to enjoy things just to make them like you. You subvert your own needs. You stick around when you're treated badly. You make excuses for them and so on. And the last characteristic that I'm finding, which has been very interesting in, in having this as a specialty practice now, is that you research extensively to try to understand the narcissist. 
the most common question I get is not how can I recover, it's why are they this way? And I have to remind people that I'm not interested in why they're this way. I'm not a specialist in narcissists. I'm a specialist in you. I am a specialist in helping you recover from what damage has been done to you. And as long as you keep focusing on them and trying to figure them out, you're just distracting yourself from your own recovery. So learning to look at yourself is a very hard thing for a scapegoated child to do because they grew up focused on that narcissistic parent. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So... You know, a lot of this hits home. I don't consider myself to be a scapegoat, uh, but a lot of your list, uh, you know, depending on what type of child uh, you are, because there's, I guess, the scapegoat, there's a golden child, a lost child, a mascot. I might be missing one or two in there. But it's still, even though I wasn't a scapegoat, a lot of this still does uh, hit home with me because I guess, you know, a, a lot of the time, I guess, when you're growing up in this, Roles change here and there. Um, you're not. Yes. Sometimes you're not always the, the the same one. I consider myself to be more of a a lost child. But I everything here I've experienced for the most part, and this is how I am uh, today. Especially when you you set your needs aside in friendships and romantic relationships. Uh, I I you know for me personally that's what I like slowly became and when it became you know I think around let's say ten years ago when I started to deal with these things is when I realized how big of a problem uh, me putting people on pedestals uh, was or were and uh, finding my way backwards. Um, and understanding all of the roles in my family first was the biggest step for me. So can you explain um, all of the different roles and maybe the manifestations that happen uh, or occur later on in life with them? All right. Um, the first thing you need to know is that it generally takes an enabler for a narcissist to parent. So the first role, of course, is the narcissist. I'm going to talk in terms of the mother because it's exhausting to say mother or father, but believe me, there are just as many, if not more, fathers. Uh, but So there is the narcissist in the middle, and Dr. McBride says the enabler parent circles around the narcissist like a planet around the sun. The enabler parent is protecting the narcissist, defending them, trying to make the children stay lay low and not upset or offend the narcissist in any way. And that leaves the children floating in space. And the dynamic is similar to the dynamic or similar to the dynamic for an alcoholic family in that you've got the narcissist in the center, the enabler, and then we'll talk a minute about the golden child. The golden child is the person who, bottom line, never gets better the rest of their life. 
They never go to therapy. They just don't see a problem. I call them the narcissist in training. They are chosen for whatever reason, and we don't know why. There's some various clues, but the golden child is chosen to be the one that is excused and defended. Um, sometimes they're treated as if they are somehow handicapped or defective or things are said like, oh, it's just that red-haired temper he has or things like that that otherwise excuse them. And they grow up spoiled, for lack of a better word. Um, now, the, the, the opposite to that is the scapegoat. And the scapegoat is far and away most often what I see in my practice. Who The scapegoat is the one who comes for help in most cases. The um, best example I can give for this is the uh, sitcom Friends. Um, there's Ross and Monica. Oh, yes. And they, of course, brother and sister. And Ross is the golden child. He can do no wrong in the family. Uh Monica is always blamed and criticized and basically uses, is the one that the family uses to say, this is the problem. This is why we're not happy. It's her. There's an, even an episode that just perfectly describes this where Ross has done something terrible and I can't remember what it was and his parents are there and Monica's there and Ross finally confesses to his parents his terrible sin and they turn to Monica and say, and you knew about this? So she was in trouble. Not that she did anything wrong, but she didn't tell them, so she was in trouble. But that's how the scapegoat is. They're always the, the one who is punished or chosen as the problem in the family. The uh, term is really interesting. It comes from the Bible. In um, ancient times, a priest would choose uh, the strongest goat in the herd and would symbolically cast all the sins of the village onto the goat and say, now you are the problem, and they would drive it out into the wilderness. And the goat was chosen for its strength, which is what I often tell my clients, is you are chosen because you're not staying in the box. You're getting up and looking around and saying, wait a minute, something's really wrong here. So the scapegoat it's the one that is chosen. Sometimes it's the oldest same-sex child of the narcissistic parent um, because they see them as a threat. Sometimes we don't know why. Sometimes it's just birth order. But that would be the scapegoat and the golden child. So just for one second, it, it's, it's interesting that you brought up Ross and Rachel because I've done an episode on my Narcissist Apocalypse Survivor Story podcast early on. I actually did an episode about Ross from Friends and how Ross uh-huh. is a is technically, in the show's sense, a covert narcissist because they don't really present him as a terrible uh, person because there's always mm-hmm. a laugh track going on behind everything he's says and there's an actual clip on the internet where they take away the laugh track when ross is speaking and without the laugh track you really get to see what ross is really about without any outside influence from uh i guess the laugh track is an enabling uh laugh track and you really get to see that he is um always blaming other people 
It's never his problem. Uh, even mm-hmm. on the day when Ross uh, had his uh, his wife ex wife had a baby, he made it all about him. Uh, on what's supposed to be, you know, the best day of your, of your life. You're having a child. Uh, he was always manipulating and even in his relationship when it comes to uh, the Rachel character, not just in the dynamic of him and his sister, uh, where he always thought he was smarter than everyone else, in the dynamic of that relationship with Ross and Rachel, Ross was always... Uh, he not that he thought he was uh, better, but he used his victimhood as a way to uh, be attractive uh, towards her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was just a, if you really were able to break him down um, of all the characters on the show, he is the, the least uh, likable and the most toxic by far. So I, I just wanted to kind of because uh, that, that whole entire relationship was uh, to me was it was fascinating especially how he was presented to uh the world as being this uh, thing but in reality he's the uh, the opposite and you would not want to be mm-hmm. his friend you would not want to be uh, um in a relationship with him because he, exactly. he, he 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 presents himself uh as a victim but he is grandiose in his own mind <laughs> That's true, and and there's another scene where he and his father are um, mocking and gaslighting Rachel. So you're absolutely right about that. I, I think both he and his father, we had a narcissist and a narcissist in training. You're right. So the other roles uh, in the family, we have uh, a lost child, and how does that mm-hmm. child get thrown into everything? The lost child... Pretty much, there's so much drama surrounding the uh, the golden child and then the scapegoat. There's so much criticism and bad vibes surrounding him or her that the lost child is pretty much discounted, kind of shoved over in the corner. A lost child often ends up being um, very smart with technology. They escape into um, television, video games because they're just counted out of that world. They're, um, they're not paid attention to. The, the two may, it's like the two spring roles for the children are the golden child and the scapegoat, and the lost child is kind of left to fend for himself. And then we have, I guess, the mascot role? The mascot is that clown child that tries to make the family love each other by being funny and cheery and telling jokes all the time and trying to get everybody together and pump everybody up. And they, they try to compensate for the dysfunctional family by being adorable, being the person who um, breaks the tension in the home. And grows up in denial of the tension and still takes on the role of mediator. I'm going to get you together and you together, and we're all going to laugh and smile because we're happy families and it's going to be fine. 
that's generally the mascot's role. So when you were talking earlier, so there's something you said that it really hit home uh, with me because you've said many things that hit home with me so far. And it had <laughs> to do with uh, one parent being, they use the word enabler. Uh, I've had another mm-hmm. conversation with someone where we discussed them as being a codependent. and But it, the word enabler... Um, is, is an interesting word in how they are enabling the uh, the narcissistic parent to kind of do whatever they want. And, and in a sense, they're shielding uh, them. And it just really, to me, that really uh, hit home uh, in the sense of, because you also might you also might have I guess a narcissistic uh, sibling within your household already, and 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 that child as well might be being sh- uh, shielded. So uh, can you discuss uh, I guess trust maybe uh, as far as you know if a if both parent I guess the the parent that's supposed to be loving you uh, is is and taking care of you is enabling the other person. Uh, all of these children. Uh, it doesn't matter what role they they play. Uh, it, trust is eroded. So, is there when you become older, how uh, how do you deal with narcissistic parents uh, when it comes to trust in rebuilding the relationship with them, even if it's possible, especially with the enabling parent? Well, the enabling parent, and in my book. Uh, I have a, a section. It's a workbook, so you read a little, you write a little, and you answer some questions. But I have a section about the enabler parent, and my quote is Edmund Burke, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And that is the definition of the enabler parent. They turn a blind eye. Either they leave the family and they don't have visitations with the children, so the children are left at the mercy of a narcissist, or they actively defend so that you think you're the one that's wrong. Um, the narcissist gets upset. The enabler parent, instead of taking her aside and saying, okay, calm down, that's a kid, they come to you and say, what did you do? Why did you do that? You know she doesn't like that. Why did... And so the enabler parent is Enabling is a passive word, but it's an activity, and they are just as responsible for the mistreatment because of their absence or their passive silence. And this is hard, Brandon, for my clients to realize because when people come to me, they desperately want to say that one parent was good, one parent did their job. And in order to heal, you have to admit to yourself that that parent was just as responsible because they allowed it and enabled it to go on. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And building trust with those people as adults, I I don't know that you can. The relationship will have to be pretty, um, pretty superficial if you have a relationship at all. As far as contact levels, it's, you know, it's, it's not likely the enabling parent is going to ever wake up and say, wow, I shouldn't have let that happen. So, no, trust is probably not going to be very strong. So as adults, as children, as adults, what are the various uh, types of contacts and different types of uh, options you have? Uh, obviously, there's no contact, but within the realm of contact, uh, is there a way you tell people to or your clients to handle these situations? 
Well, the traditional two are no contact and low contact. Uh, but I have a third that I have devised, and I call it protected contact. And protected contact means that you are never around the narcissist without a protector of your own. My book is dedicated to my husband because he is my protector, and I will never be around my mother without him there. And the reason this works is because most narcissists have a real high radar about how they are perceived. They want to be thought of as this perfect person. So if someone is around, they will back off the abuse. So protected contact means you never get on the phone with them unless you're on the speakerphone with your protector nearby. Uh, you never get in the car with them alone. You never get in a room with them alone. And this is the only way to stop the abuse. You don't read mail that they send you. You forward it straight to your protector or you throw it away. Uh, you just don't ever allow them unsupervised access. Now, so many narcissists care so much about the stage and the spotlight. They, they care so much about how they're perceived. This works particularly well with um, narcissistic women who are very concerned about how men see them and they turn on the charm for the son-in-law or the neighbor or whatever other man is around and they won't abuse you with that person around. So protected contact is a great compromise for people who are not ready to cut off contact completely. And that's one thing I want to say. Um, I don't ever tell my clients what to do. I don't ever say, you must cut them off or you should do this or that. This is a very individual and private decision. And so I try to offer them options. And protected contact is one way that people can have some kind of way to be around the family and around the narcissist without opening themselves up to the abuse. So protected contact is an option besides no contact that is out there. That, that is the first time I have heard of the third option, and it's brilliant. Um, Thank you. It, it, it really, really is. Um, I've never read anything about that uh, online. I've never heard anyone mention it. So, it's, well, I mean, uh, you should be proud of yourself for for building that because it's, it's, it's it's more it's, my own necessity. <laughs> yeah, because it's it's something it, it that pe people really don't think of that as an option. And um, it's just a really, really, really uh, brilliant piece of work you did right there. So um, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. So uh, I guess this part of the show where we will maybe start doing some questions that people have sent in. Do you want to do that? Sure. All yes. right. So uh, question number one I have here. I'm one of three siblings to a senior citizen mother with ailing health. My other two siblings are no contact with my mom, but I still help as my mother is not doing well. I feel too much guilt if I were to abandon her in these final stages of her life. The most difficult part is, is that she's become meaner as she's become more reliant on me than ever. How do I put her in her place when she knows that I will not leave her? I really empathize with this because I'm in a very similar situation myself, and this is an extremely common 
story for me to hear from my clients as well. The first thing I would encourage this uh, person to look at that's asking this question, first of all, whoever you are, my heart is with you. I know how hard this is. You want to be the good daughter. You want to be the, the, the good child, and you also you know, don't want to abandon someone that's obviously ill. So I spend a lot of time on this one, and I ask a lot of ministers, um, spiritual leaders, and we were trying to come up with what is our duty when a person is so mean to us. And we came up with this. If that person has food, if that person has shelter, if that elderly person has medical care, those are the three basic needs that people need. And there's nowhere in the Bible or any other religious readings that says, thou shalt let thy mother scream at you. There's nothing out there that requires this as part of their well-being. So doing this from a distance is fine, being sure that those basic three needs are met. And then if you feel that you must, must be around them, and again, I don't try to talk anybody out of anything, then I suggest taking your protector with you and making the visits very short and saying outright, Mom, when you talk to me like that, it makes me not want to come back. And that's the honest truth, and people deserve honesty. So basic needs, setting the boundary of I'm going to need to walk away if you talk to me like this, and taking a protector would be good ways to handle this. And the next question is, I'm struggling to figure out if my children should have a relationship with my narcissistic parents. Do I tell them what their grandparents are? Do I let them find out themselves? I don't want them to be around my parents' behavior without me being around. I have this one a lot, too. Um, It's very difficult when it's your child and you think that you're depriving them of of a relationship with a grandparent. Um, I have, uh, in my book, I have a day 12 is about um, the protected contact again. But basically, here's the idea. If If your parent cannot be trusted to not uh, put you down or try to align your child secretly with them, then they do not deserve private contact with your child. So there again, we're back to protected. I have one client whose um, narcissistic mother wants to see the grandkids. The grandkids are in their teens and they want to go. So her husband takes them over there. And he monitors carefully the entire visit, every word of it. And if anything inappropriate is said about my client, they pick up and leave. And the kids know why. They, they know that that's going on. You don't want to give um, psychology lectures to children about narcissists. It's not healthy. They love that grandparents. They, they deserve to love them without complication. But you also do not want them unprotected. So if the narcissistic parent has been critical or rude or mean to you, it's very likely they're going to do that to your child eventually. So, again, I'm back to protected contact. If the parent can be, if if the narcissistic parent can be appropriate, 
and be supervised and be willing to realize that that's the price she pays for how rude she's been to her daughter, then maybe some kind of contact would be okay. But if not, if it's been abusive and horrible for you, then you do not owe this. And it will not do your children good to be around an abusive narcissist. So there's a lot of gray area in there that you need to assess for yourself. So the next question I have for you, it's an interesting question because this one has to do with a narcissistic parent, but also a sibling. So I still talk and help out my narcissistic mother. However, my sister has cut off all ties, leaving me to do everything for her as she's gotten older. I understand why my sister has done so, but it's also left everything on me. This has left a rift between myself and my sister now. I'm really pissed off about it too. My sister is single with no dependents and I have two children and one with special needs. Am I asking too much of my sister to just grin and bear it uh, to help me out? or do I need to respect her boundary with my mother? I am confused and depressed. Yeah, this one's very similar to the ones we're talking to um, talking about here. But basically, this person needs um, some counseling or life coaching and to find out why she keeps putting herself last, perhaps. Um, it's really what I find when people ask me this is they're mistaking their mother's or father's needs with wants. Again, needs are pretty basic. And if that mother has food, shelter, and medical care, the rest of it is wants. She wants company. She wants you to come spend the night because she's lonely. She wants you to drop everything and come over there. So if this were my client, I would do some really close talking about what exactly are you sacrificing yourself for with this parent? Now, the sister does have a right. All adults have a right to say, I cannot be around this person. But the sister could contribute to the parent's care in other ways, such as money for a caregiver or um, perhaps sending a meal delivery service to mom, something from a distance. Um, doing things from a distance for your uh, narcissistic parent, if you just feel like you have to do something, I love the long-distance approach. I love sending them uh, meal delivery service if you think they're hungry or need food. I love sending them, um, I hired a driver, <laughs> just like an Uber person for my mother to get around to the store and all because I knew she had that need to have food, but every time I tried to be the driver, it ended up horribly. So I would encourage this woman to, first of all, say, am I really supposed to be sitting by her side, patting her hand while she screams at me, or does she have what she needs? And then maybe looking at her own life and her own tendency to sacrifice. And then, of course, there's always, as we talked about, having a protector go with you and seeing if mother would be nicer. It can be a friend. It can be a family member that understands what's going on. Um, I have an aunt that I dearly love who understands and can help me with all of this. 
So finding somebody like that, but the confusion, she definitely needs some professional help, something to find, someone to help her find out how to prioritize herself a little bit more. I like the point that you made about wants and needs and the the, the difference mm-hmm. between wants and needs and how it is very confusing for a lot of us uh, of what is a want and what is an actual basic need and to be able to differentiate those two uh, going forward for people on, you know, to make a decision, just like there's a, a, uh, a pros and cons list in a sense. It's really a list of you have to take a step back and say, is this a want and is or is this a need? Um, mm-hmm. And that's an interesting approach uh, to at least uh, finding the uh, the truth of a situation, the truth of what is the real reality going yes. on. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, Jerry, you wanted to continue? I thought. Well, you were... I was just going to say that that got very um, that got very obvious for all of my clients this holiday season. Um, there's so much social pressure to just shut up and take it with your parents and to just keep going back and keep going back. Every Hallmark movie has something so pretty about being around your parents for the holidays, things like that. And that's really that's really not part of what a good person, what you have to do to be a good person. A good person protects themselves. And they see to the basic needs of the elderly, but they don't have to go and just take abuse to be a good person. There's a big distinction. And before uh, we close down the show, is there anything you want to uh, say more about, uh, I guess, this topic of narcissistic parents and the, uh, the family as a whole? Um, I really just want to encourage the people that are listening to to reach out for help, um, read the books, talk to therapists, life coaches that are experts in the field. And then I really am a great fan of my own book, It's Not You, It's Them, 30 Days of Hope and Help for the Adult Child of a Narcissistic Parent. It's selling worldwide. Um, I'm getting marvelous feedback from people telling me how helpful it is because it's not just a book that you read and go, oh, that's interesting. It's a workbook where you have to think through and apply it to your personal life. So doing things like that, um, listening to these podcasts, reading blogs, all of these are good ways to feel like, to realize that you are not alone. And there are a lot of us out here. And when we all support each other, and take advantage of resources, then we get better. And people can also find you at Rockwell, rockwellcounseling.com, and that is R-O-C-K-W-A-L-L hyphen C-O-U-N-S-E-L-I-N-G.com, and I will have that in the notes after the show as well. Um, and right, they, Rockwall. Rockwall Counseling. Rockwall. Yeah, Rockwall Counseling. Rockwall-counseling.com. Uh-huh. And then uh, they can also email you. Can, should we leave your email as well? Yes, sure. Uh, so that's, an email off of that So that's site. info at Rockwell, Rockwell, I can't even say it properly, info <laughs> at rockwell-counseling.com as well. I think you're saying rock, 
rock well. It's rock wall. I'm, 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 like I'm, a wall it, of rock. It, it's my Canadian. <laughs> it's my Canadianism coming through here. I'm not saying it properly. Info at rock wall. Uh, dash counseling dot com. This will, th- I'm gonna yes. I'm gonna leave this in so people can make fun of my Canadianism. <laughs> Um, and for, you know, everyone, uh, you know, your, your book is available on Amazon or, or so it's on Amazon. So 30 days of hope and help for the adult children or adult child of a narcissistic parent. Uh, it's not you, it's them is the, uh, the, the, the full name, um, uh, that is available on amazon.com or in amazon.ca and it's also on my website Uh as a download. And it's on your website as a download, and you are in practice in all of Texas as a LPC, as a professional counselor, and worldwide as a coach for everyone who yes. who uh, wants to use your services. And I think after this episode, uh, people uh, will because you. Uh, I mean, I learned. I, I can't tell you. I learned so much in this episode. So, uh, and a lot of it hit home with me. So I really want to thank you for uh, being part of our show. Um, and I know that you're going to help a lot of people and you've already helped a lot of people. Um, and I know specifically one of my friends where uh, one of these questions comes from is thankful for you being on the show today. Um, and, and, um, for everyone out there who is listening, thank you for listening. And I hope you all have a good night.